Jeremiah chapter 6 tonight, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And now in Jeremiah, if you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. And uh, wave, and they'll put one in your hand. You'll be fairly lost tonight without one. And if you don't own a Bible, make that gift, a Bible, a gift from the Lord to you this evening. I'm glad you're out tonight. I, you know, I rarely say, how do you, you know, how do you thank people for coming to church? I mean, you just shouldn't. There's just in, internally in me, I just, I can't do it. And um, because, of course, it's our privilege, isn't it? And I, I just have a, an aversion to nurturing a weakness in God's people. If it's a fault, I have it to a very great degree. Um, but it is nice to be together. And it is nice to not be alone in a room like this for any of us. And I appreciate your love for the Lord and your love for his word. Jeremiah chapter 6. And here Jeremiah, he continues to confront the southern kingdom of Judah with, uh, with their uh, sin. And as we go through Jeremiah, as much as the, often the case with the major prophets in the Old Testament, there's a certain repetition that we begin to notice that God speaks to them over and over and over and over again uh, concerning uh, the same thing. And here is this ongoing message to them uh, related to repenting. It's important when we as Christians who are in a personal relationship with the Lord and we might not be in a place where uh, uh, you know, where Judah is, you know, tonight in our personal life and engaged in uh, gross immorality or in gross idolatry or whatever this kind of thing. But as we read it, the thing that we want to get from it, one of the things, we want it to, to purge our lives of, of sin as well. But to notice how patient God is and how long-suffering he is. And we look at how many times is he going to say that and instead to think about how wonderful that a God is one day going to be forced to judge these people, but how, how uh, long-suffering he was in trying to get them to turn. And there uh, are probably more than a few of us in this room this evening for whom uh, we can remember a season in our life where the repetition with which God convicted us for long years of being far from him when we knew better, uh, uh, we have known the same voice, the same repetition, thankful for the density of it really in our own lives, even as we see it in this book. And so uh, even the repetition here gives us a cause to remember for some of us and give him praise that uh, he doesn't give up easily and uh, he works to prevail within our lives. Oh, you children of Benjamin, and Benjamin was uh, the tribe of uh, Jeremiah, and it was a major tribe in the southern kingdom uh, 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 that made up the kingdom of Judah along with the tribe of Judah. Gather yourself and flee from the midst of Jerusalem. And so here is this warning that judgment is coming into the land. It's coming from the north once again, speaking of the Babylonians. And here God tells them uh, as this is approaching that they are to flee the midst of Jerusalem. doesn't make any sense at all because Jerusalem was a walled city. It would be precisely the place you would run to uh, in the event of an invasion of the land, and yet uh, the Lord uh, speaks to them here and tells them that they need to get out of there, that Jerusalem will not be a safe place there, uh, but the only safety will be kind of out in the wilderness, the open area away uh, from uh, Jerusalem, that Jerusalem is going to become a, a death trap because of its sin. Blow the trumpet in Tekoa and set up a signal fire in Beth uh, Hakarim. And uh, this is the, again, the imagery is military, ancient military where the horn is blown that warns of the approaching army and then the fires, the signal fires that are lit on the various hills that then bring the message to Jerusalem that the Babylonians have entered the land and they're on the way to the city. So as we read it from, you know, from this distance of thousands of years and so forth and many of us not having any kind of an active military background, we can kind of miss the panic of, of the imagery 
history that uh, would have entered their heart as these signals that uh, Babylon was actively now invading the land, for disaster appears, he said, out of the north and great destruction. And then the Lord declares, I have likened the daughter of Zion to a lovely and delicate uh, woman. Uh, the shepherds with their flocks shall come to her. They shall pitch their tents against her all around. Each one shall pasture in his own place. And so uh, here you have, he's uh, likening Judah for all of its military and all of its supposed power. He likens them to being as vulnerable before the Babylonian army as a beautiful woman who's been left unprotected in a wilderness uh, area. And, uh, of course, that would just be the, the, uh, one of the ultimate feelings of or one of the ultimate kind of images of vulnerability. Uh, a beautiful, uh, as he uses a language here, a delicate woman out in the wilderness. What in the world is going to happen to her? Now, Judah feels that she's strong. She's got her military and blah, blah, blah. But God says, no, uh, this is what uh, is the image of your vulnerability vulnerability. Prepare a war against her. Arise and let us go up at noon. Now, this speaks of the eagerness of the Babylonian army, their invader. Uh, they don't, uh, they want to go to war as soon as they can against her. Arise, let us go up at noon. Woe to us for the day goes away. Come on, let's attack, let's attack uh, uh, for the uh, shadows of the evening are lengthening. Arise, let us go by night even, which wasn't a, a standard time for battle, and let us destroy her palaces. And again, this would terrify the heart of anyone who would listen because not only is this a great military coming against uh, Judah, but this is the eagerness with which uh, they sought uh, to destroy her. For thus says the Lord, uh, for thus has the Lord of hosts said. Now, uh, this is interesting as God speaks here of his, this is his judgment against Judah. Um, there is in life what is known as a sowing and reaping process in life, that we do reap what we sow, and that is a cycle that is true in the physical realm, also true in the spiritual realm. And so to sow badly, to sow poorly, to sow to what is wrong is, of course, going to be the reaping of uh, that in kind in an even greater measure. And as bad as being on the wrong side of a sowing and reaping process, there's something even worse than that. And that is when God rises up and then begins to personally and actively begin to resist us uh, in our sin. Uh, you know, we, you know, Paul wrote to the Romans and said, if God be for us, who can be against us? And the idea is successfully, well, no one. But conversely, if God be against us, uh, then there is no hope for us, whatever our power or wealth or Judah felt that it had. Uh, you know, <laughs> there is God and there is everything else in uh, the universe, and he uh, exceeds the universe uh, God always uh, wins. And what's the old saying? The two rules of the universe, there is a God and you're not him. You might add a third one. Don't pick a fight with him because you can't uh, win. And that's what they were doing. And so the Lord of hosts declares through Isaiah or Jeremiah, we don't want to go backwards, do we, Jeremiah? So cut down trees and build a mound against Jerusalem. This is the city to be punished. She is full of oppression in her midst, people taking advantage of other people just because they could. That's an awful characteristic in any people, but certainly in God's people. As a fountain wells up with water, and so imagine here in that very arid Middle East, you have a fountain, and what you have in a fountain or spring is the water just is gushing up out of the ground and so forth. And so she wells up not with water, but with her wickedness. I think it reminds me of John chapter 7 where Jesus talked about being baptized with the Holy Spirit and out of our innermost being will come a torrent of living water. But instead of a torrent of living water coming out of their innermost being as God's people, 
Here you have wickedness. This was what was pouring out of their lives. Violence and plundering are heard in her uh, before me continually uh, are grief and wounds. It was awful for God to watch what was going on. Be instructed, O Jerusalem, lest my soul depart from you, lest I make you desolate and a land not inhabited. So God continues to call upon them uh, to repent, and, uh, and there's still hope uh, if they would, and he attempts to get them uh, to understand this. So their sin is not superficial. Their sin just fairly gushed out of them uh, like uh, a fountain. And then the Lord declares concerning the completeness with which the Babylonian army will strip the land. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they shall thoroughly glean as a vine the remnant of Israel as a grape gatherer. Uh, put your hand back into the branches. Now, um, it's been a long time. I cut, used to cut grapes when I was a, a kid, but I only remember uh, passing through the vineyard one time. Everything got kind of taken off with that one time through. I used to pick prunes too, and they always made two passes through that, and, um, and then they left whatever was still in the trees on the third pass, left that uh, as it was. But I, I, I probably the imagery is for the... You can educate me afterwards. I, 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 it would have been very easy for me to Google it and, and have skipped this entire part of this embarrassment that I'm in the middle of here right now, and you're feeling terrible for me. But I suspect that when they went through a vineyard in the ancient world, and I suspect they do the same thing today, is they just simply take everything, all of the fruit, off of the vine. And here God is calling and declaring to the great gather to go through a first time and then to go through a second time. In other words, make sure there's nothing left upon those vines. And it was God's way of saying poetically that when the Babylonians get done with Judah, uh, she will be picked clean. To whom shall I uh, speak and uh, give warning that they may hear. Indeed, their ear is uncircumcised, and they cannot uh, give heed. And so uh, here is this, uh, you know, God uh, speaking here, Jeremiah. He's, uh, Jeremiah is frustrated in verse 10 here at Judah's unwillingness to listen to God's warnings and to take God's warnings seriously. And he's going to talk about from the least to the greatest, everyone. So here he is preaching, God, I deliver your message, but absolutely nobody is listening. Uh, nobody cares. Now, that's, that's a little hard. Uh, on a preacher, someone that's speaking uh, for the Lord, and he describes their ear is uncircumcised, and the idea is that uh, the, an uncircumcised ear is an ear that is dominated by the flesh. They have no appetite to hear anything spiritual, uh, no appetite for anything except what speaks to uh, their uh, flesh at all. And so that is, of course, a very, very dangerous condition to uh, get into when uh, a nation, especially a group of people that uh, represented God's people in the world where uh, God's word no longer was impacting them, not as a nation, but then even worse, not on an individual level in, in any great way. I mean, some of us, as we endeavor to walk with the Lord as Christians in the United States of America in its kind of current uh, plunge in terms of spirituality and morality, um, we could, you can look at it and say, well, um, I can't have any control over the direction of the nation as a whole, but I can control myself. And as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But it's kind of worse than that now in terms of Judah. It's not only on a national level that people aren't listening to God's Word, but even on an individual level, finding such a person is, is hard to find. So no respect for God, no respect for His Word. Again, I am reminded of my eighth grade uh, math teacher, Mr. Wheeler. I think I'm bringing him up in the second time here in the book of Jeremiah. And uh, Mr. Wheeler told us in the first day or two of our class there, somebody was misbehaving and he said something to him. He was disregarded and he went up and he got in this kid's face and he said, when I tell you to jump, you ask me how high on the way up. 
Marty Feldman eyes. The whole room is just, all right, this guy's in control of this room. We know what the, you know, who's in charge here and all. And we gave respect to Mr. Wheeler's words for the rest of that year. And uh, here is God speaking to his own people, and they won't take it uh, seriously. And so here is the complaint as, as Jeremiah makes it. Therefore, verse 11, I am full of the fury of the Lord. I am worthy of holding it in. And then the Lord's reply to Jeremiah, I will pour it out on the children outside and on the assembly of young men together. For even the husband shall be taken with the wife, the aged with him who is full of days, and their houses will be turned over to others, fields and wives together. For I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord, because from the least of them even to the greatest, everyone. Here is that word. We're talking about not what we have in our nation right now, where it seems split right down the middle in terms of morality and spirituality. But here, uh, Judah, at the time that we're reading this, we think our country is in trouble. Here's the case where everyone is given over to covetousness. From the prophet even to the priest, uh, everyone deals falsely, and God is now confronting them with their sin, covetousness, the ungodly desire for more, the willingness on the part of a person to say, I will disobey God's Word because I want this. And it can be a relationship, it can be a position, it can be a material thing. And so God was being sold out uh, by His people uh, to all manner of things that they had an ungodly desire for. The priest and uh, the prophet, from the prophet even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. Nobody could be trusted, uh, you know, in, in, in their dealings with one another. And then speaking of the priest and the prophet, they also have healed the hurt of my people slightly saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And so, talking about these false prophets who comforted God's people while they were in willfully engaged in sin rather than warning them of the judgment that would come. And so here they are. What, what, the, what Judah needed desperately at that moment of time was all of its priests, all of its prophets united together in calling this nation to repentance and to turn from their sin, not just a isolated voice here or there in the form of Jeremiah, but all of these men that had been called uh, to do this, and they were not doing it, and instead they were telling people, uh, there's not going to be any war, there's not going to be any invasion, everything is going to be fine, it doesn't matter how we live, God isn't going to be provoked into judging us, and so forth. And it is one of the great lessons of the book of Jeremiah because I see it everywhere today. It doesn't, I do, when I say I see it everywhere today, I don't mean that it is everything that I see today, but it's very heavily represented. Beware of the person who comforts you in a sinful condition and then tells us you're going to be okay, everything's okay, it's all going to be okay, because it's not going to be okay until I am right with God. And there is such a focus today upon, above all, um, you know, peace, peace, uh, happy messages, perky messages, keep away from judgment, keep away from hard things, people that, things that people don't want to hear, and so forth. But here is one of the marks of the false priests and prophets is when they proclaim to a group of people who ought to repent a, a message of peace to them. And were they ashamed when they had committed abomination. No, they were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. Therefore, they shall f uh, fall among those who fall at the time I punish them. They shall be cast down, says the Lord. So, again, they have no shame. The culture had no shame concerning sin. We've already talked about this at length earlier in the book of Jeremiah, uh, but at least the reminder that a conscience 
A conscience is a terrible, terrible thing to sear, and it is possible to sear a conscience. A conscience conscience where we are convicted of sin when we are wrong is a gift from uh, God, and it's been given to us by God for our protection. They had reached a point where they had seared their conscience and uh, headlong going into sin and, and utterly neglecting God's voice, and they were shameless in their participation uh, in, uh, in sin. And so, uh, the, thus says the Lord, I mean, the people wouldn't listen to him, and so uh, the Lord does here now. He says, all right, I can't make a witness of my people to my truth, so I'm going to uh, call the earth to be a witness to what it is that I'm saying. If my people won't listen to me, that my creation in the forms of the earth, uh, uh, in the form of the earth, it will listen to me. And thus says the Lord: Stand in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths. God directs Judah. That is God's paths, the tried and true paths. And it's important to understand that the old ways and the tried and true path, and there is only one in human history, and it is God's path. Every other path is the path of the book of Judges when every man did what was right in his own eyes. The path that we're on as as a nation right now, if it's successful in in its uh, headlong thrust towards sin and the legitimization of everything, it will collapse. It may not collapse in our lifetime, but it will collapse. It has to because it is to operate against the entire way that God has created this world to operate morally and spiritually. And as surely as there are laws that are assigned to the physical realm in terms of orbits and seasons and so forth, the law has assigned laws in terms of morality and right and wrong within the hearts of human beings and in the world. And to violate those is to go against God. And ultimately, it has to to collapse. So there is only one tried and true way. Everything else is a cycle of destruction and harm and judgment that brings a world of people back to God's old way. It always ends up back there because it has to. It's the way we've been designed to live, the way we've been made to live. And so it always returns there. The secret is to recognize that truth when I'm in rebellion to God and make that choice as soon as I can so I don't have to go through the whole judgment phase. But God always wins in this cycle, and it's His love uh, that causes it to be so. Stand in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths where the good way is, and walk in it, and then you will find rest for your souls on the new ways, the new morality, the new spirituality. Hey, listen, there's a lot of fun. The Bible talks about the fact that sin is pleasurable for a season, very short season. There's always a hook associated with sin. It always brings into bondage, but there is that kind of carefree moment. Why would those dumb Christians, why do my dumb parents restrict me from doing this? This is the greatest thing that a person could ever do. And a person doesn't realize they're months and maybe years away from waking up one morning and say, I am utterly addicted to this thing that God warned me about, and now I realize that God is the only one that can pull me out of this. And so uh, here is this uh, elevation in our culture. This is fun. This is fun. This is great. All the excitement, all of the budgets, all of the hundreds of millions of dollars given to the promotion of these things and so forth. But the one thing you'll never experience is the one thing we must have and the thing that is more valuable than all of those things put together, and he speaks of it there in verse 16, and then you will find rest for your souls. What good is it to partake of all of the sin of the world and to experience its limited and short season of pleasure 
if there is no rest for your souls. And one day every human being comes to a place where if they listen to God and the conviction of the Spirit, there'll be a longing for the rest, rest in my soul. All right, I went out and I did all the this and the that and I bought into the whole routine and I thought God was so square or whatever the equivalent word is uh, today for that word. And, uh, and, and, and I headed my own way and so forth. And then one day you say, I must have rest for my soul. I cannot live another day without rest for my soul. And ultimately, it elevates itself, and it, it becomes the great valued thing for our, our very survival. And the key is to recognize it for the valuable thing it is now before we fall prey to all of the lies concerning sin and all of these baubles that are put before us and all of these uh, things that they try to tempt us away from the lone place of rest in our souls. But they said, and this was their response to God, we will not walk in it. And also God said, I set my watchmen over you, that is the prophets, saying, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not listen. And therefore, hear you nations, and know, O congregation, what is among them. Hear, O earth. And so here he calls the earth. My people won't listen to me. I will make the earth uh, my witness to what I'm saying. Behold, I will bring calamity on this people, the fruit of their thoughts, because they have not heeded my words, nor my law, but rejected it for what purpose to me comes frankincense from Sheba. This is offerings they were given to him uh, at the temple. And sweet cane from uh, a far country. Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices sweet to me. And it's God's way of saying, uh, there is no sacrifice that you can offer me that will take the place of your obedience. There's no substitute for obedience. And remember Jesus talked about in, in this very same vein. Uh, he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Then anything else we want to add to our obedience to the Lord is, is icing on the cake. It blesses God. But without obedience, it means nothing to him. You know, don't you hate it when people con you? I mean, it, it's a funny thing where you just, some people, they come up to you and you just know, all right, they're talking, they're talking, they're after something here. They're going to con me here in some way. And I, it, you just hate to be, uh, to be conned because you look at the person, and by the way, um, I, mm, I won't say it. See, I'm improving. And, uh, but you, you, you look at them and you say, um, do you think I'm stupid? Because, you know, to con a person is to consider them stupid to be able to do it. And my mind went momentarily into the political realm, and that's, that's why I, see, I couldn't help myself. But, but there's just this con going on all of, of the time here. And, and when here they are going to the temple, they're bringing these sacrifices and all of this thing without an obedient life, and it's like they're trying to con God. And, and God said, this is an insult not only to my nature but to my intelligence. And therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I will lay stumbling blocks uh, before this people and the fathers and the sons together will fall on them and the neighbor and his friend uh, shall uh, perish. And thus says the Lord, behold, a people comes from the north country, and a great nation will be raised from the furthest parts of the earth, again speaking of the Babylonian invasion, and they will hold on bow and spear. They are cruel, and you notice that word, and have no mercy, you notice those two words, and their voice roars like the sea, and they ride on horses as men's of, men of war set in array against you, O daughter of Zion. And here the Lord is warning them that their enemies are coming and that their enemies are going to be cruel and they're going to be without mercy, unlike God who was trying to deal with them in mercy and 
and trying and, and lovingly tried to deal with them. If they wouldn't listen to his voice, then these folks would come in. And if, and if God is going to be ignored, then we become prey to those who will then deal with us with cruelty and without mercy. And uh, listen, and the application for us is, you know, we don't have to, you know, wait for a Babylonian empire to invade uh, Modesto tonight or anything like this. But our enemy uh, makes the Babylonian army uh, look like a Cub Scout troop. And our enemy is the devil, and he has a demonic host that is at his, uh, his disposal and to fail to listen to God and to obey God makes us vulnerable to that great army and that great battle. And he will never show us any mercy, and he is cruel beyond description. The place of safety is in walking with the Lord. And we have heard uh, the report of it, and, uh, and here is the, uh, the grief and the sorrow that's coming uh, to Judah because of their sin. We have heard the report of it, uh, the invasion. Our hands grow feeble. Anguish has taken hold of us. Pain as of a woman in labor. And so here you have the news of the invasion coming into the land, and everybody feels it inside of them like uh, the pain of a woman in labor, very, very deep pain, I'm told. Uh, but do not go out into the field, nor walk by the way, because the sword of the enemy, uh, fear is on every side. And so there'll be the patrols again, the probing, the scouting parties of the Babylonians into the land. The land will become unsafe even before the invasion. O daughter of my people, dress in sackcloth and roll about in ashes. And to dress in sackcloth and, and to... Uh, uh, anoint yourself, so to speak, with ashes. That was a sign of mourning. Mourning is coming. It's interesting. He talks about rolling uh, about in ashes, not putting some ashes, sprinkling it on your head as some small sign of mourning. The mourning that's coming to them is so great they could just empty out the fireplace hearth and put it on the ground, roll on it, and, and that's the scope of difficulty that's coming. Make mourning for, as for an only son, a, a, a most bitter lamentation. Uh, to lose your only son in the ancient world, the way that all of this was viewed, was to uh, lose the family name, which was a very significant loss in a Jewish family. And, and so the ultimate loss was, would be to lose an only son. And, and God is talking about here the ultimate kind of pain and lamentation coming their way, for the plunders will suddenly uh, come upon us. And I have set you, he told Jeremiah, as an assayer and a fortress among my people, that you may know and test their way. They are all stubborn rebels, walking as slanderers. They are bronze and iron, talking about the metal, you know, uh, and they are all corruptors. The bellows uh, blow fiercely, and he's talking about being at a place where somebody is putting these metals of bronze and iron into, uh, you know, an oven or into, I, the word is escaping me right now, but to melt them down, a forge, and, uh, and so forth. They are bronze and iron. They are corruptors. The bellows blow fiercely. The Lead is consumed by the fire. The smelter refines in vain, for the wicked are not drawn off. People will call them rejected silver because the Lord has rejected them. So God appoints Jeremiah here as an assayer among the people, as a refiner who would uh, test the purity of a precious metal to determine uh, kind of its contents. And so an assayer would turn up a great heat uh, in uh, the forge and then and put it under the molten silver so that all of the dross, all of the impurities would rise to the top. And then he would scoop off uh, all of those dross and impurities and only leave uh, the pure silver as a result. But what God is saying to the nation of Judah and to Jeremiah is that no matter how high he turned the heat up among the children of Judah in judgment that they refuse to be purified. No matter what 
Jeremiah spoke to them. The heat was intended to uh, purify them, sanctify them spiritually, but they refused to repent. And so the result is rejection. And so just as a silversmith would reject unpurified silver uh, as of being no value for his purposes, so too God rejected Judah here as an unpurified people who were of no value to his purposes. And what was his purposes for the nation? His purpose was that they would be a witness to the entire Gentile world of the power and the wisdom and the grace and the goodness of God so that the Gentile world would long to know and to love and to obey the God of the Jews. And they were marring this entire uh, picture here now. And so they have rejected God's word and his discipline. Now he would uh, reject them. And so he likens Jeremiah's words to a, 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 as a refiner's fire. They had refused to listen to uh, his words and that refusal revealed that spiritually speaking, they were not silver, marred by a little bit of impurity, but that they were made up of all base metals with no precious metal in them at all. The entire nation, God said, is dross. There is nothing valuable to me left in this nation spiritually at all. It is all valueless. It's a powerful, powerful picture and a powerful warning uh, to the nation. In chapter 7, we come into a significant uh, block of the book of Jeremiah, and it's known as the Temple Addresses, and it covers several past uh, chapters from uh, chapters 7 through uh, 10. And they're called the Temple Addresses because of the location in which Jeremiah delivered these messages. He delivered them at the entrance of the Jewish temple in uh, Jerusalem. And uh, so uh, he, he goes there and, and he begins to speak now, uh, not out in the street, not in the highways and byways, so to speak. Now he goes right to the temple. It would be the equivalent of having someone, I think our main entrance is a south entrance, probably more people come into the church through that, having someone standing right there where those handful of trees are in the canopy. That's where Jeremiah would be stationed if this were the temple, and he would be speaking these things uh, to the Jews as they entered into the temple. It would do two things. It would accomplish two things. You can imagine what a ruckus it would create if somebody did that on the grounds. Uh, we'd have them arrested. But anyway, um, uh, we would test the prophecy, though, before we did that. But the uh, but it, it would accomplish two things in speaking these messages at the temple. Number one, it would uh, guarantee Jeremiah a very large audience in speaking God's message to them. And number two, he would be speaking to the exact audience that he needed to be speaking to. And what God is going to do now in these chapters is to denounce the hypocritical worship of uh, the people of the southern kingdom of Judah. He has been uh, condemning much of their sin that they've committed in private, the privacy of their own homes, the privacy of their own neighborhoods, the privacy of their own cities. But now he's going to condemn the fact that their sin, their idolatry, their disobedience uh, has now come in and defiled the temple as well. And so that's why uh, he is going to confront them. Important to realize that at this time in Judah's history, religion is booming. It is booming. The temple services are jammed. People have not walked away from God in terms of, uh, you know, abandoning some kind of cursory surface level acknowledgement of God uh, through the Old Testament. They are going to temple in the same way that you might say people, you know, in a time where their private lives are completely given over to uh, what is wrong, still attending church. Well, this is something that the whole nation was there, but they were still going to the temple, and God didn't like what he was meeting at his temple, and, and I think it's very important. It speaks an important lesson uh, to us, and, and the fact that a temple or certainly related to a church even today is not deemed healthy solely on the basis of its size, 
but rather upon the godliness of its members. They had huge number of peoples coming, people coming to the temple, but there was no godliness among the people, and God said, I'm going to bring all of this to a halt. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, stand in the gate of the Lord's house. Again, this is where he positions himself. Everybody's going to hear him. And proclaim uh, there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all uh, you of Judah who enter in it, uh, in at these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Very important to notice in verse 3, because what God speaks through Jeremiah here is basically an encapsulation of the Old Testament. He said, amend your ways and your doings. That's a condition that he's requiring of them. And then the promise, I will cause you to dwell in this place. The entire Old Testament law of Moses was based upon uh, two great words, if and then, if and then. If you do this, then I will do this. If you obey me, then I will bless you. If you disobey me, then I will curse you, so to speak. And so this, it was, uh, the covenant was based upon an if and a then. And so here he's reminding them of that fact that my promises are not unconditional in regard to my blessing. In other words, the entire uh, law was if you do this, then I will do this good but, uh, for you. But somehow, under the priests and the prophets that they were under, they had become convinced that God was required to give them the blessings without them meeting the condition of obedience for the blessing. And, and this is one of the things that is uh, uh, challenging for me today because I, I see that it ends in no good. Again, when you have so much of the positive confession uh, teaching that talks all about the promises of God, and we talk about, uh, you know, the pastor, and there's others that are different than the pastor of the largest church in the United States of America who says, I, I haven't been called by God uh, to preach judgment or uh, uh, to preach about sin. God has called me to preach positive messages, but this is to do such a disservice to people and to God's people and to Christianity to get up there and to spend an hour telling people how God is going to bless them without mentioning at all that what is required for that blessing is obedience to His Word, you have ignored everything about the Bible. You've removed the if, completely de-emphasized it, or slain it, and are camping completely on the then. And that's exactly what the children of Judah were doing at this time. It doesn't matter what the if is. We're claiming all of the promises of God's Word. You can't do that. And if I do that, I am self-deceived. I don't like it. And, uh, and its influencing is growing. I can't change things, but I can say something in your heart so that when you see it, you don't get sucked into that yourself. That's what the, and God brings them back to it. This is an if and then. Amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Do not trust in these lying words saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. In other words, the prophets and the priests were telling the people, God will never allow Israel, or Jerusalem to be overthrown by anyone, not even by the Babylonians, because he will never allow his house, the temple, to ever be overthrown. And so they had reduced now the temple of God to a, uh, uh, a rabbit's foot. Do little boys still like rabbit's foots when they're uh, like about six or seven and buy them at the… No, okay. Cruelty to animals and all of that kind of thing. Um, we get them nail polished. But anyway, so… You know, but they had reduced it to this kind of lucky charm that as long as we have the temple, that God isn't going to uh, to uh, judge them, and uh, 
and a confidence in the temple rather than a confidence in a right relationship with God. And then notice how God reinforces this if and then before them. For if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, these are the sins, these were the ifs that they were ignoring at the time. If you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place or walk after other gods to your hurt, then I will cause you to dwell in this place, to continue in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you trust in lying words uh, that cannot profit, and, uh, and uh, that will you steal and murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered to do all of these abominations, that God has made us his people to live this way, that he has freed us by his Holy Spirit to live this kind of life and, to, uh, and, and still think that I'm all right with God, has this house which is called by my name, God said. It's not just your reputation, Judah. It is my reputation uh, uh, associated with you. And this is one of the things that Judah lost sight of, and we have to be careful that we don't lose sight of it as well. When we identify ourselves as Christians in the world that we live in, we become a walking advertisement for God and for Christianity. And everyone has an absolute right then to look at our lives and come to conclusions about Christianity on the basis of what they see in our life and hear from our lips, and then to also, even more soberly, to come to conclusions about our God. And they have a right to do that, and God desires that our lives would be such that we would be a favorable advertisement for people to say, I want to know a God that can turn that person who I once knew what he or she was like into the person that they are now. But Judah lost sight of the fact that people are coming to conclusions about our God when they watch our lives. And they lost sight of that fact that the Gentile nations around them were looking and saying, well, that's the way that they live, and so their God must be uh, okay with it as well. And so God's name was being blasphemed in all of this. And so he says, uh, and will you then come and stand, verse 10 once again, before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered to do these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, even I have seen it. And so uh, he talks about the fact that the temple here, is, as Jeremiah speaks it through him and, and says that the temple here has, in, in, instead of being a place that's known for holiness, it's become a hiding place uh, for, for thieves and uh, for, uh, for oppressors and, and, and the unjust. We recognize the passage here talking about uh, the temple becoming a den of thieves. Jesus used that imagery when he cleansed the temple. At the beginning of his ministry, in the end of his public ministry, he cleansed the temple and he declared that the Jewish religious leaders of his day had turned it into a den of thieves. They had made it into a money-making operation and it wasn't a place that was holy anymore, a place for holy people to congregate or godly people to congregate. It was a place that hid thieves and, uh, and had become their stronghold. An awful, awful thing to say about the temple, but unfortunately at that time it was true. And he warns them and provokes their memory by saying, but go now to my place, which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at first, and see uh, 
what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people uh, Israel. And so he gives them the reminder of Shiloh, and uh, they didn't think that God would allow Jerusalem to be uh, judged or to be destroyed, uh, no matter how great their sin became, and uh, because the temple was there. And so God reminded them of Shiloh. Shiloh in the Old Testament was the original site and uh, uh, the location of the first tabernacle associated with the worship of God when the children of Israel came out of their Egyptian captivity. And the worship of God was centered in Shiloh for 350 years until David came on the scene and he made Jerusalem the center for the worship of the Lord and moving the tabernacle there and then later his son would build uh, the temple there. But the same thing happened at the time in, in, Is, in uh, Israel's history related to Shiloh. The people by and large under a, a high priest by the name of Eli, he was a good man. He, he didn't know how to uh, uh, reel his, his sons in who were awful uh, priests under him, but the wickedness within the nation, uh, sin everywhere within the nation. But the people said, we can't be defeated. We've got the Ark of the Covenant. And then finally they were invaded one, uh, one day by the Philistines, and they got the bright idea of the, let's defeat the Philistines by carrying the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence of God in the battle against the Philistines. Again, they were reducing the presence of God, the things of God, the tabernacle of God, the Ark of the Covenant, to a rabbit's foot. It was, it was just a spiritual superstition. And so this will give us good luck in battle. God will give us a, a victory in the battle, no matter how abysmal our lives are. And they took that Ark of the Covenant into battle, and then most of us know the rest of the story. They were defeated by the Philistines anyway, and the Ark of the Covenant was taken captive. So God was telling them that you're talking about the temple, the temple, the temple, the temple, and that nothing can happen to Jerusalem because of the temple, but remember Shiloh, and that it was sometime after that Shiloh as a center of worship, uh, again, it, it disappeared from uh, Jewish history. We don't know exactly the time. There isn't a, a focus, uh, that kind of focus upon it uh, in, uh, in the Old uh, Testament record. And so he warns them, uh, I, this isn't, uh, this, you're, you're doing this, you're repeating the same mistake in your history. And now because you have done all these works, says the Lord, and I spoke to you rising up early and speaking and the sending of his prophets, but you did not hear. And I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house which is called by my name, talking about this temple, in which you trust, and to this place which I gave you in your fathers, I'm going to do to the temple the same thing I have done to Shiloh, and I will cast you out of my sight as I have cast out all your brethren, the whole posterity of Ephraim. Southern kingdom of Judah would go into captivity in the same way that the northern kingdom of Judah or the northern kingdom of Israel uh, went into captivity to the Assyrians. And then God speaks to Jeremiah very soberly. Therefore, do not pray for this people. Wow. Listen, for those of you who pray for me, if God ever says, don't pray for him anymore, send me an email. I mean, I'm in trouble, all right? This is, we just, it's almost inconceivable in our mind that God, the prayer is, you know, such a, a, a a spiritual exercise. It's such a spiritual dynamic. It, it, it's such a spiritual activity. We would just never, we would think that no matter what the situation was, God would never call somebody to stop praying in a situation. And, the, and yet that's what he does here. Therefore, do not pray for this people, nor lift up a prayer, a cry or prayer for them, nor make intercession to me, for I will not hear you. And here is a place where God recognized what Jeremiah could not recognize, and that is they're not going to turn, they're not going to listen to you, and so stop interceding for them. Continue to prophesy for me, but stop interceding for them. Now, I don't want you to go home and, you know, okay, it's going to take, take 25 people off my prayer list right now. You know, I've been praying for them for 25 years or whatever. Um, no, we need to continue to pray for people 
and this is the rule, this is an exception uh, to the rule. The general rule is, is that we continue to pray for people, even in hard situations, until we see the answer to our prayer or we hear God's voice releasing us from praying for that any longer, where he says, no need to pray for that anymore, take it off your list, and you move forward. And sometimes we don't know why or what or anything. But here is an extraordinary situation where God says, no, uh, they're never going to turn, and so don't pray for them anymore. It's a a bad place to be in. Uh, Do you not see what they do in the streets of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, and the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead dough in order to make uh, uh, cakes for uh, the queen of heaven. And this was one of the goddesses that uh, they were worshiping in uh, in Judah there. They were... uh, uh, putting these, uh, making, sending the children out to grab the wood uh, to then uh, light the fire that then would heat the dough that they could then put before the graven image of uh, Ishtar uh, that was uh, being worshipped at that time and right there in uh, the city of Jerusalem. And so he said, look what they do. They do it right in the city and that they may provoke me to anger. Do they provoke me to anger, says the Lord? Do they not provoke themselves to the shame of their own faces? And therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my anger and my fury will be poured out on this place, on man and on beast and on the trees of the field and on the fruit of the ground, and it will burn and not be quenched. And so here again he addresses their uh, sin of open worship of the queen of heaven, the Assyrian goddess of uh, Ishtar. Ishtar was the goddess of love and sexuality, but also the goddess of war, the goddess of violence. Um, It's interesting that Hollywood uh, understands the value of the worship of Ishtar and uh, calls it uh, horror films where you have the wedding of violence with sexuality. And it's no mistake what's going on. And it is a conditioning that goes on in people's hearts where now I view uh, sex, the sexual relationship, I view it from a context of violence, and it perverts a person. It tweaks us uh, when we allow that to be sown into our hearts. None of this is innocent. This isn't just uh, parents or pastors or elders uh, warning us away from this kind of thing. It has an effect upon, uh, uh, upon our thinking. It has a deep effect upon our lives. And so that's what uh, the goddess Ishtar was, the goddess of love and sexuality, war and violence. So the, and so the worship of her was often involved uh, prostitution and, and sexual immorality and so forth. What's interesting about all of this in, in terms of God's denunciation of it is the mention of the children gathering the wood for the uh, worship of Ishtar. And it speaks then about, you know, here's the next generation involved in it. And it, and it indicates how far the parents had moved, the parents had moved from teaching their children about God and obeying his commandments to instead involving the next generation in idolatry, in worshiping everything else that the world uh, worships. And, And this now was now generational, and God saw what had happened here. And the place to watch for supremely the decay of a nation is not supremely its government uh, or even its churches, but the condition of its families, the condition of its fathers and its mothers, and the condition of the younger generation and what they're being exposed to and what they're being raised in. That foretells the future of the nation in a way that nothing else does. And so God takes note of the fact that the whole family is involved in all of this and the parents don't have any problem with it, even though they continue to go to church and take the kids to church, they don't have any problem with it at all. I think that 
I think that the heart, there may be something harder in life. And I'm not talking about how we die. But I think the hardest thing that any person will ever do in life as a Christian in the United States of America is to raise a child in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord in accordance with his word against the tidal wave stream of the culture and the pressure to do otherwise. And I know that so often children get raised in a godly home where parents raise their children with that kind of a fear of God, the recognition that the parent has that one day I will stand before God and I will give an account for how I raised my children and that might be the single greatest thing that God holds me in account for. And then so often when a child has the privilege of that kind of a background, a privilege of that kind of an upbringing, to be delivered into adult life with some semblance of innocence, some uh, semblance of freedom, and that they're not hooked already on all of the 20 greatest sins that are waiting to hook them in life, what they then do with their freedom, what they then do with their innocence, once they are grown up, that will be a reflection upon them. But I would say that if any parent delivers you into that place with those kind of privileges into your adult life, do not curse them for the rest of your life for having given you some kind of a torturous childhood. You have been given a childhood that most of the world would long for, and it's only a season of folly when a person cannot appreciate it and then maybe decades later will appreciate it. God holds us, and I remember telling my daughters and uh, numerous times when I was forced as a parent, and Karen and I said yes to everything that we could say yes to that was not a violation of the word. But in this culture, it means saying no to a lot of stuff anyway and stuff that they wanted to do. And I would tell them, one day your father, not as a pastor, because I would do the same thing if I wasn't a pastor. One day your father is going to stand before God and I'm going to give an account before him for how I raised you. And I want to hear a well done, thou good and faithful servant in that regard. And what you think of it later or how you value it or devalue it later. I have no control over that. But I will endeavor to bring you to a place of adulthood in this culture with the ability to stand for God and walk with God in all of the temptations that surround us without exposing you to every bit of the evil as a part of that preparation. And I just want to be someone tonight in closing, that this was not in my notes, by the way, <laughs> but something maybe just from the Lord to some of you parents. You're doing the hardest thing in the world, but you're doing a great thing. And it's a great thing not only for your children, but it's a great thing for the nation and the world and the kingdom of God, even if no one appreciates it but God. And for those of you who are children of this kind of a background now, there's such an epidemic of it today. All of these people bashing their Christian parents for raising them in this restricted lifestyle that they had. Think about it. Think about it. They might have known something more than you know in, in raising you in this way. And I think it needs to be said today and it wasn't being said at the time of Judah, and the entire families, though all of them were going to church, were going right down the toilet, spiritually and morally. Well, we will stop there tonight, and we will pick things up in verse 21 um, next week.
Lord willing. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, we see once again that there's nothing new under the sun. This is the same old thing. And we see that the same old thing is as great a temptation to us as your people in this age as it ever was to them. We pray that you would use your word tonight in the presence and the power and the cleansing of your Holy Spirit to just brood upon us right now, to just let the beauty of holiness and the truth of that to once again impact our hearts and our minds and our spirit in a fresh and a new way. Thank you, Lord, for recording all of the mistakes that Judah made at this season in their history. And we know that you try to keep our sin as quiet as you possibly can. So we know that you did it not to disgrace them or to needlessly expose them, but to instruct us. Thank you for that instruction. And we thank you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. If you stand here this evening and you are not yet a Christian,